Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 6, uh, 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower region, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this is God's word. Thank you, Sherry. If you'd like to follow along, we encourage you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. For those who may be just joining us, we are wrapping up a series. It's been a six-week series on the nature and the necessity of holiness. Over the last five weeks, we've seen from God's word how central holiness is to our understanding of God, to ourselves as God's holy people, to our calling on this earth, and ultimately where our greatest joy comes from. But up to this point, the focus has been primarily on our personal Holiness, how we as individuals should understand and pursue holiness, which is important to understand and yet incomplete. Because the primary context in which the New Testament speaks of holiness is not actually as an individual pursuit, but a corporate one. Not just a personal pursuit, but a communal one. And so our goal this morning is to really answer the question, why is that and what does that look like? So if you would, bow your heads with me and we're going to pray and then dive in. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Thankful. Lord, that you have redeemed us. Lord, we were weak. We were unholy. There was nothing in us that wanted to come to you and yet you redeemed us, Father, 
from the curse of the law. You redeemed us, Father, from our unholy ways, inherited from our forefathers, and you have redeemed us and made us your own, and you have made us holy, and you have given us a holy calling. And Lord, we pray that as we spend time looking at your word this morning, that you would allow the Spirit to make your intent for your people clear, that you would minister to them, Lord, that they may be built up as one holy, mature body. And Father, that you would encourage and strengthen them ultimately, Father, so that the glory of Christ may be known in this world through the holiness of his people. And we ask that you would do that, Lord, again, not for our glory, but for yours and for the good of us, your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a legend you could say it's history, but it's hard to know where legend and kind of history overlap. About a man named St. Simon, or St. Simeon, who lived during the 4th, 5th, or 6th century in what is modern-day Asia Minor, or Turkey. And this St. Simeon, at the age of 18, entered a monastery and, and basically took on a, a vow of poverty and, uh, and, and began to engage in a life of a, an ascetic life, where he was basically casting off any sort of comforts of the world in order to be able to devote himself to prayer and holiness. He was so zealous that he eventually left the monastery because of all the distractions and went and pursued God in a well in the mountains. And then he left the well a little while later and ended up in a cave away from everyone. Well, as is often happens, his zeal was so great that people began to pursue St. Simeon and wanted to understand what his secret was. And they began to ply him with questions and advice. And this so disturbed St. Simeon because he was seeking to be isolated from people in order to be able to preserve holiness that he eventually climbed up on the uh, column of some nearby ruins about 8 to 10 feet above everyone else and just sat there. And he stayed there for the next 37 years. Now, not on that particular style or that particular pillar, but eventually newer and higher ones were built so that he could quite literally rise above the temptations of the world and the people around him and pursue holiness between just him and God. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? No, it doesn't sound amazing. You guys don't have to say yes to that. And I don't mention it to you this morning because I think anybody in this room is tempted to climb on a pole by themselves. But because I think that same idea, that same misconception about how holiness is pursued is still alive and well today. This idea that holiness is meant to be pursued in isolation or by withdrawing from God's people. Because what we see in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is a very different idea of how holiness is meant to be pursued. Because what we see in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is that growth in holiness isn't meant to be merely an individual pursuit, but holiness is a community project. Do you know that? God is not concerned just that you would pursue holiness on your own, but that you would operate with a larger vision, a larger idea of what his plans and purposes are, and that you would pursue holiness as part of a community 
of people that are working together towards that same end. And isolation from that community doesn't help us grow in holiness. And in fact, it actually hampers us and makes it harder. And I think we need to hear this in every age. But particularly in this one, because it is so common today to think about what it means to be a Christian, much less what it means to pursue holiness in strictly individualistic terms, not communal ones. The me before the we. But in these verses, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us three reasons to help communicate with clarity to his people that if they are going to pursue holiness, they are not meant to do it in isolation, but as part of a larger body. Okay? Everybody with me? Three reasons why this is meant to be pursued as a community. First, is because holiness actually plays out in loving unity. Holiness plays out in loving unity. Now, I, I mentioned this before, but one of the things that I find interesting is that for a good part of my life, if you were to ask me to describe someone that was holy, I think the primary thing that would have come to my mind is someone that is intensely full of self-control, right? Somebody that is like St. Simon, the one who, or Simeon, the one who could stay up on a pole for 37 years. That is the picture of holiness. Look at the dedication. Look at the self-control. That would be the essence of holiness. And yet when we look at the pages of Scripture over and over and over again, we see a different characteristic held up as what is essential, and maybe you could even say preeminent to holiness. Do you know what that is? It's love. Love for others. And we see this over and over again. If you start putting the pieces together in Scripture, the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then the second, love your neighbor as yourselves. Or even when we're listing the fruits of the Spirit, we always begin with love, which was not an accident. Jonathan Edwards actually said it was starts with love because love is the fountain of all other virtues. And so we see this again and again throughout Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, of the essential nature of love to, to our holiness. But what I want to do this morning is that I want you to see in these first few verses of, of Ephesians 4 how Paul develops this here. Notice in verse 1, he begins, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let me say this again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, as we've said many times before, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to do what? Know what it's there for. So when Paul uses therefore, that's his signal that everything that he's about to say is built upon something he's already said. Okay? So what Paul has been doing for three chapters in Ephesians is he has been laying out for these people the glorious reality of what God has done for them in Christ. How he has redeemed them, chosen them before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless before him in love. 
And he's kind of developed this over and over and over again until we get to the Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, which is the, the prayer I mentioned yesterday, where Paul prays that these people that have received this incredible love would actually be able to be rooted and grounded in the breadth and length and height and depth of this love, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. So that's what's just come before. Now, what's he going to do? Well, now he moves into the, the so what, the therefore. He said, because you've received a love like that, here's what you're supposed to do with your life. Now, now if you remit, read what's come before, you've got to be thinking, all right, the therefore, this call that he's coming, it's got to be something dramatic, right? Like, it's got to be something, like, pretty amazing he's calling them to. How do you live a life worthy of that kind of love? Actually, what he seems to say in these next verses is that it, it looks somewhat unremarkable. He says what it looks like is to live with the Christians at the church there in Ephesus, beginning in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let me say it again. He says, you're to live as worthy of this call by living with other believers in that church there in Ephesus, to which he's writing to, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words... The way Christians walk worthy of Christ's love for them is to engage in the humble, gentle, patient labor of bearing with one another in love. Which means far more than simply, just get along, y'all. It does mean that too, though. Let's look at this language here. Look, look what he says. He says we are to treat each other with humility. You see, humility operates in a way that takes into account and prioritizes other people. It doesn't think only of oneself, but constantly takes into the needs and the wants of others. How often have I heard the reason given for doing or not doing something as this? Well, I don't get anything out of it. As if that in and of itself is justification enough for determining whether or not you should do something. Because guess what? I guarantee you there are more people in this world that might be affected than just you. I think one of the things I always think about is watch growing maturity in a child. When a child is an infant, there is only one person in the world they think about. You know who that is? Themselves. But growing maturity means growing concern and awareness of the needs of others. It's a growing awareness that, you know what, I'm not the center of the universe. Maybe somebody else is. Maybe I'm actually called to, to serve and love and give to others. So he says part of the way we bear with one another is love is with humility. Next he says gentleness. And this is a sensitivity and care for others. It produces a thoughtfulness and concern in how other people are affected by my actions, words, and thoughts. Some people say, that's, you know, they, have you run into people? They're like, you get offended, you're hurt by them, and then they're just like, that's just who I am. Take me or leave me. I 
man, I just want to confess to you, like, I operate sometimes with this mentality. Like, that's just, I'm brash. I say things. Guys, that's not loving. That's not gentle. Gentleness takes into account the way we impact others, and it feels the weight of the harm we might cause, and it seeks to do no harm. It seeks to, to care for others in the way we interact with them. And finally, he says, we do this with all patience. So when other saints in Christ disappoint us, hurt us, offend us, misunderstand us, we don't hold on to that, pulling away and pointing the finger. They did not love me like I wanted to be loved. We learn to absorb this. Going to them if we need to go to them and say, I've been wrong, brother or sister. Or we just, learn to, we just learn to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. But all of this is part of what it means to bear with one another in love. And I just want to say this. All love amongst human fallen people involves bearing with people. Emily and I talk about this sometimes. The reality is like in our marriage, we would rather be married to each other than anybody else in the world. And yet we still have to bear with one another. And when you're in a group of people that's far bigger than just you and one other person, and they're all sinners too, part of what it means to love with them is to bear with them in their weaknesses, their infirmities, and their sins. That is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the love you have received. But Paul's next words add even more meaning to this command. So, He's looking back and said, this is how you're supposed to love based on the way you've been loved. But then he says something more. He kind of adds just another layer of beauty to this. After bearing with one another love, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that, huh? Well, he says in verses 4 through 6, there is one body, and he explains it, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now just a, a basic hermeneutical approach here. When you see someone repeating a word five or six times, that's the main point. Okay? And so he is wanting to make it clear that there is something about who you are now that is one. In other words, we are to love one another and to live in unity with other saints in Christ because we are are spiritually one with them. And this isn't something that you have to like make believe. This isn't something you have to achieve. He's saying this is a spiritual reality that you were called to live in, that you were called to maintain. It's not as if you're just trying to create this unity. He's saying this unity exists whether you believe it or not. Now he's just calling you to live in it, believe in it, walk in it, right? By faith we have been united with a triune God who is a unity of perfect love between persons. And we have been united to one another and to that God by faith. Notice the repetition again of the one. He is wanting you to see that because God is one and you have been made one with Christ, you should be living eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because you are 
1. And it's interesting because the scriptures and metaphor are diverse that help us describe this union. We are, we are made parts of one body, right? Anybody ever heard that language before? Members of one body. We are branches grafted into one vine. We are adopted into one family. We are living stones in one house. He is not trying to say this just to give you some diverse analogies. He's trying to communicate a central point. Part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ is that you are united to other believers, even if they look like nothing like you, talk nothing like you, think nothing like you, that if they have the Spirit of God in them by virtue of faith in Christ, they are one with you. But here's the reality. Paul doesn't tell them here to walk worthy of this call because that means it's going to be easy. It would be nice for us to have the Spirit and for us to be able to say we're one with Christ, we're one with God, He is one, this is great, now let's just go enjoy it. He's saying that even though this is a spiritual reality, there's a call to walk worthy of this, right? There's a call to pursue it because is it going to be easy? Is this going to be easy? Of course not. Because this is an aside. You want to know what's going to proclaim to the world a God that is faithful and real is when people who come from different backgrounds, who are look different, who have different taste in music, who are different in every way, when they come together and love one another and prefer one another because that is where the power of God is made visible in a community. How often do we look at people pointing at the church and going, they can't even get along with each other? And in some measure, they're right. Because it is the power of God displayed in the people of God in the unity of that people that helps proclaim the goodness of the message that we proclaim. Amen? So then the question is, how do we do this well? I want to give you three tips here, just three insider tips. I've been doing this church thing for a while, and I think hopefully this will be helpful. First, Press in and expect to be disappointed. Yeah, I'm telling you to do two things. Press in and expect that you're going to be disappointed and maybe even hurt. I've just found that having your expectations properly set will help you immensely. And I'm not saying that that's the point. Like, I'm really just anxious for you to be disappointed and hurt. But I want to encourage you to press in anyway because I believe that the benefits of the body of Christ and what it looks like to you like to walk in unity depend upon us being able to press in even when we're disappointed, even when we're hurt. And I also want to say to you, if you're hearing this and going like, hey, this is no problem. Loving people, being in unity with them, that's no big deal. Let me submit to you. That's because you haven't pressed in yet. It's really easy to love people you see once a week for an hour and sit alongside. I'm just saying, we're glad you're here, but I do think that Paul's admonition to bear with one another in love is to be around people enough where they can get on your nerves. <laughs> if you don't believe me, hang out with me for a little while. <laughs> Stop it, Jason. And if you want to know, hey, what does this look like? 
We'd love to invite you to our Exploring Lakeside class tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll meet over there. Let me know so I can make sure we've got your food. But we'd love to kind of walk that out. What does that look like in practice? Second, I just want to encourage you to be, learn to be thankful for an imperfect church, an imperfect people, and imperfect leaders. Because I've got news. There are no perfect churches. There are no perfect people. And there certainly aren't any perfect leaders. Know that God is intended to work great good to imperfect people through imperfect means. The fact that your church isn't perfect is okay. The fact that your leaders aren't perfect is okay. God can still do you great good through imperfection. But if you want to damage the unity of the church, and if you want to disconnect yourself from this as a means of grace, allow a critical, discontented spirit to become dominant because it will become antithetical to everything we've just said before. It will damage, do damage to the unity of the church, and ultimately it will hurt you because it will prevent you from being able to receive the means of grace that God intends through his people and through his church to be a blessing to you. And thirdly, I just want to say, humbly pray for God to reveal to you where you are failing. In other words, assume that it might be possible that you are part of the problem if you're struggling. And have a teachable heart. Pray and ask your pastors what you can do and what can happen. And they will be, and they will be there to help you. And we're going to talk more about this in just a minute. But I think one of the things that's so hard is that when we begin to see and become disappointed and disillusioned with the church, which happens for everyone, is for us to pull away and to press, instead of pressing in. Like when we start to become disillusioned, the best thing that we can do, as long as it's not a doctrinal issue, is to press in and to seek clarity and to seek what's going on so that we can receive help from it. Everyone with me? That's point one should have prefaced this. This is going to be a little bit longer. If this is your first time, they're not normally this long, but this one's going to be. I'm wrapping up a six-week series, and I've got more to say, so I've got to cram it all in right here, okay? Forgive me. This is one of those areas where are just going to be disillusioned with the leadership. Just press on. <laughs> so first, after focusing on the unity, next Paul's going to switch gears, and he's going to talk about the diversity. So second reason that holiness must be a community project is that holiness grows through a variety of gifts. Holiness grows through a variety of gifts. Em and I have been watching this series on Netflix on the human body, which is fascinating. And one of the things that we're seeing as you watch this kind of this documentary is how intricately designed each system is in order to be able to accomplish its designed goal and how it must function alongside many other systems in order for the whole body to grow and thrive and flourish. Amen? It's, I mean, the body is some of the clearest evidence of a creator God that I can imagine. It is amazing. And what's interesting is that in these verses, Paul is going to say something similar about the body of Christ in the form of gifts he's given to each for the good of the whole. So he says, in, beginning in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
Therefore, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the hall of the heavens that he might fill all things. I know that sounds really confusing. Let me simplify it for you. He's simply saying that before Jesus ascended, meaning went up to heaven, he had first descended to the earth so that he could lead a host of captives. Captives being who? You and me. And that when he ascended to the earth, back to the heaven, he gave gifts to his people so that they could complete the mission that he had given them. That's it. Okay? And he's made it very clear that everyone has a gift, but then he specifically focuses on a few gifts in verse 11. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, why does he focus on these four gifts? Are these all the gifts? No, he's clearly said everyone's got a gift, but then he focuses on these four gifts. And let me give you a reason. Because these are the equipping gifts. Okay? And so notice what he does here. And he says, begins with, he began with the apostles and the prophets. Now back in Ephesians 2.20, Paul has made clear that the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Which meaning that these men, handpicked by Jesus, saw him eyewitness and were commissioned by Jesus to bear the authoritative testimony of the, of the Jesus who came and for them to be the ones where the, the, the truth of the, the gospel was established in these men. Okay? They were to guard the truth. They were to establish truth. They were the foundation. And before the canon or the New Testament canon that we have, the Bible was closed. There was this group of men called prophets. And these prophets functioned kind of like they did in the Old Testament. But the main thing they did is they helped people know what the full counsel of God was before the New Testament canon was closed. All right? Both these apostles and the prophets we understand to be over now. Right? Because the church has been established. It has been founded. Now, he moves on to the evangelist. And I know when you think of evangelism, you probably think of a guy in a suit who travels around to different churches and preaches the gospel to people that are already saved. I don't think that's what he means here. By evangelist, I think he has the idea of people who bring the gospel to places where it was not known, specifically called and set apart to bring the gospel to places where it hasn't been. So once the church has been established, you need men who have a desire and women who have a desire to bring the gospel to places where it has never been named in order for the church to be established. And then once the church is established in a region, I've got two family members, one in Cambodia, one in Nepal. That's all they're doing. They're going to villages. They're preaching the gospel. They're seeing Christians converted. And they're planting churches. Okay? That's their goal. I think that's the gift and call of an evangelist. All right? That doesn't mean not everybody is called to evangelism. Are just they called to evangelize? No. But there are certain people that are specifically set apart for that work who give their lives to it. Okay? And then he finishes with pastors and teachers. Now, what's interesting here is he uses one article... And he uses two words. So our pastors and teachers, two different people. You have shepherds and teachers. I think the way he's describing this is that it's intended to be seen as one office or one function. So after the gospel makes it into an area, there are believers there. They need to have pastors and teachers. That's where that word shepherd comes from. It's the Latinized version of the word shepherd. It means pastor, right? That's where we get it. And these shepherds and teachers or pastors are then therefore responsible for bringing about the maturity of those people that have been converted. Does that make sense? Do you see the divine order here? Do you see the beauty here? And so pastors or shepherds and teachers are called to help build the church, see it grow to maturity. We see that everywhere Paul goes, he's calling them to establish churches and then um, call elders or pastors. Same idea. 
to lead those churches, to shepherd them and, and take care of them. But now we need to ask the question, what is the goal of their ministry? And this is an important point. So you may have agreed to everything I just said about pastors and shepherds and teachers and missed this point. Don't miss this point. The goal of the shepherds and teachers and the goal of the evangelists and the goal of the apostles was so that, verse 12, or 2, equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. The idea is this. That in a healthy church, as God designed, there are not those who minister and those who receive ministry. There are not those who go and they pour out and then everybody soaks in. That's not, that's not the picture. We have this. These pastors, these evangelists, these apostles, they have this desire to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which means what? Who is doing the ministry? The saints. And who are the saints? Saints, right? It is you. Everyone who is in Christ by faith. And so he's saying that the role of pastors and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now this is a really important point because the reality is that until you understand that part of what our role is is to equip you to be what God has called you to be, you don't understand the relationship that we're called to have. And specifically, he says they're called to, to the work of ministry and their aim is for the building up of the body of Christ. It seems that everyone then has this part to play in the equipping of God or the, the, of the building up of the body of Christ. And the pastors are to give people the tools that they need, the training that they need, whatever they need in order that they can equip one another, in order they can equip each other and do the ministry to build one another up in Christ. Just like, a, here's an illustration that might help. Just like a body has certain systems and organs that work and supply and direct the rest of the body, so the body of Christ has Christ as its head. Pastors are called to be merely the means and the transmission of the, the direction of the, and the life of the head to the individual parts of the body. But then the members of the body, the feet, the hands, the legs, etc., are the ones that do the work of ministry in order that the church might grow and become more like Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That's a beautiful, amazing idea that we all depend upon one another. And so let's get practical for a minute. God's design for his people is to function as individual bodies. Now, I know it's, 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 it can just sound really stodgy, and it can sound really like, oh, you're importing your 21st century like lingo into this. But Paul is not anticipating that this kind of relationship is going to happen in just the ether. He's talking about it happening very concretely in what's called local churches. So the body he's talking about here is one-to-one -one with a local church. Okay? And so to love a local church who live, serve, and love together so they can be Christ's hands and feet and mouth on earth today. It's a beautiful picture, a spiritual reality, but just like with any unity, one we have to play a part in. And I just want to mention there are two things that I see can disrupt this process, okay? Two things that will enable the gifts that God has given, the growth that he wants to see, the ministry that he wants to see happen, 
two things that will cause it to short circuit. First is this. When we disregard, dismiss, or distance ourselves from the pastors that God has given. One reason Christians are called to be a part of a local church is so they can come under the leadership, care, and accountability of men specifically called and gifted for, the minist- for this ministry by Christ and for their good. But once you're in a church, once you're a part of it, once you have said by membership, I want, like, that's me, I want you to oversee my soul, there's a few things that you can do to be able to benefit, and that's my heart in this. First is show up for public ministry time. I know that it might seem trite, but part of the means of grace for you is that you would actually be a part of a local public gathering. I can tell you without a doubt, you can ask my wife if you have any questions, I spend hours and hours and hours so that I can clearly communicate to you what we see here. And that's not just me. We've got people ministering throughout the week, serving throughout the week. We've got all kinds of ministry focused on this time together. But the second one's really important. If you're in need, if you've been hurt, if you're struggling, would you reach out? We exist for your good. We are imperfect. We are going to get it wrong. We may hurt you. Would you talk to us? Would you come to us? Would you let us know? If you are wanting to benefit, I'm just so honored every time a member of our church comes to me and says, I'm struggling with something. Like some people, times people are like, man, you got five kids. You're a pastor of a church. You don't have time to deal with my situation. I'm like, absolutely I do. And not just me, we've got Jeff and we've got Andrew and God's, in God's providence, he's providing other men that we hope to see raised up for this role of elder. But I just want to call you and encourage you, if you're struggling, let us know. That's why we're here. I promise you, we will make time and we will do whatever we can, but please speak to us. And then thirdly, I would just say, allow us to speak into your life. truth is that you can labor with people and pour it into them, invest them, and the moment you say something that they don't want to hear, they'll be like, I'm out. And it's not as if pastors are perfect and they never make mistakes, but if a pastor can't correct you, can he really help you? And if you can't be corrected, my thought is that maybe some of the grace that God wants to do to you through those pastors is going to struggle. And finally, I just say for this, another way we hamstring it is that sometimes it's because we are a receiver of ministry but are not engaged in the work of ministry. There's an intake, but there's no out. And I think it's probably good to ask, if I were to disappear from this body, Would anyone else be impacted? God has not called his people to fill a seat in a sanctuary, but to serve the saints. To the work of ministry for building up the body. I don't say those words to condemn anyone if you feel like you're in the crosshairs, but I desire one thing, to see you as a body grow in what God has called you to be. And if I can wound you for a moment to heal you for 
a longer period of time, I'm willing to do that. But we want to be a people who are serving and loving well. And we want to be a people that are growing together in holiness. Because our third and final point reminds us that holiness grows as each part works together. Holiness grows as each part works together. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've used that word holiness almost synonymously as we've kind of talked about practical application with righteousness, goodness, godliness. It's not because those words don't have their own nuances, but when it comes to what the people of God are to be, when it comes to our character, there, there's a lot of overlap, okay? But I think probably the best way to be able to describe what genuine holiness looks like is described in the upcoming verses because it helps us see that the aim of the Christian life is that our increasing holiness, our increasing righteousness, our increasing godliness would make us look more and more and more like Jesus. As Paul now makes clear that the goal of all the gifts and that all he said before in verse 13 would be until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul works up to this idea by saying that the ministry is intended to produce the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And I just think this is such an interesting way. He's making the point that God doesn't want you to just be good. He wants you to know the good Christ. That you would know Christ and growing in confidence in Christ. And that as you know Christ and grow in your trust of Christ, that you would be increasingly confirmed, as he says, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is God's desire for you, saints? That you would measure up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That when people say you're a Christian, they're not merely talking about your profession, but they're talking about the character of your life. That you would look like Jesus. That you would talk like Jesus. That you would love like Jesus. Is that not incredible? Now, is it going to be perfected here and now? No, but he is intending that you would increasingly reflect that. That you would continue to grow until, he says, you would lose your instability. In verse 14, he says, So that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's Paul's desire for every church body, that each member would be growing in their knowledge of Jesus, increasingly confident in him, with lives conforming to him, so that they aren't so easily sidetracked and deceived into pursuing other goals. But how are we to do that? And I think in these two final verses, Paul's going to give you a sense of how all this fits together. Okay, it's beautiful. He's going to sum up what he's been saying before in this way. So how do we grow that way? He says, not by being led astray by these craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says, rather, in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. Is that beautiful? So we don't pursue holiness like we're just a toe seeking the holiness to, 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 to give off the beauty of the whole Christ by ourselves or just a finger or just an eye. We do it as part of a whole body and a whole body that we are joined and knit to and a whole body that has a part to play in the holiness of the whole. And so he's making a few things here I want to make real clear and then we're going to wrap up because, because it's time, okay? I can tell in you that it's time, all right? So a couple things. First, he says, it's all coming from Christ, all right? So just like the body grows as it's connected to the head and all the, all the nutrients, and I know I'm, like, I'm not a biology major, but everything comes from the head, right? The direction, everything is controlled by the head, and so he's making sure that you recognize that what's happening here by growing in maturity is ultimately coming from being connected to Christ, the head. That's first. Second, he makes the point that the whole body must work together in order to be able to achieve the maturity with which God has designed it for. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is, is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He adds that part, when each part is working properly, meaning that when you, as weak as you think you are, as insignificant as you think you are, as ungifted as you think you are, when you are using the gift that God has given, when you are engaging in the service that God has for you, in that, God is going to work a supernatural reality to bring this entire body nearer and closer to God so that it reflects his glory. And that happens in part as we learn to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love. In other words, if we aren't speaking the truth in love and hearing it in love from other Christians, this first and foremost, is the central truth of our lives, that Christ has come. Now, I know that, like, the first time I ever heard this, I was like, the truth is like, the truth, right? Like, people don't want to hear the truth, but I, they can't handle the truth, but I'm going to bring the truth, and it's going to happen. When he's talking about the truth here, he's talking about the truth that he's been talking about, primarily. The truth of the reality of the gospel that you've received. The truth of what God has done for you in Christ. And he's saying that Christians grow, churches grow, as they become an echo chamber for the gospel, where the truth of his word bears fruit in their lives as they just hear the word, not merely from a pastor on a Sunday, but they're speaking it to each other throughout the week, reminding each other of the grace that they have received in Christ, reminding each other that they have been empowered to overcome sin, reminding each other that God wants them to grow into the head and to Christ, and that there is nothing more joyful, nothing better for the Christian than that they would pursue and achieve that reality. That's the truth we're to speak to each other in love. And he says in love because there's two things you need to recognize. It's going to be hard and risky to do it. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even want to deliver some of this message because I knew that it's going to hurt a few people. But at the same time, if we do it with a heart to help, we need to recognize that if that's our heart and we're willing to risk it and the heart is to help, that is the means and the spirit with which it's meant to be done. It's not meant to be like, bam, truth bomb, take it or leave it, I don't care. We want to help people with the truth, not beat them over the head with it. In other words, as we wrap up, you have a part to play in this community project. 
And you need others also in order to achieve it. And I just want to encourage you that as a people of God, if we set our heart and mind to seek this idea of holiness, this conformity to Christ in the context of a larger vision, not just ourselves, but the people of God, trusting that God will work through our meager efforts, trusting that he will work through the little that we are to attain and to achieve a greater goal of our corporate holiness. I promise that if we follow the Lord's direction here, he will work in us what we did not think was possible in and of ourselves. Because God's plan for his people is not to have individuals walking in holy isolation, but holy communities, reflecting the unity and love of the holy triune God to the world in a way that shows his goodness, his power, and his glory for their good and his fame. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, thanking you that you are a God who is faithful. And Lord, you came and you united us to yourself, giving us your spirit that we did not deserve, giving us gifts to use to be able to build up the body of Christ, Lord. And then you have called us, and not only called us, but promised us that one day we will see you face to face, Lord, and that we will be conformed to that same image of glory. Lord, that's our hope, that's our promise, that's our joy. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to achieve that as we pursue one another. Lord, and when we are hurt by one another, that we would go and tell the person that's hurt us. That we would grow in the way we love one another, Father, that we may reflect the love that we have received. And Lord, as even as we pray, as we move down into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, that you would help us see and understand and rejoice and what you have done for us, and that it would flow out in the way that we serve and love others. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.